Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, with a message titled, Shutting the Door to the Kingdom. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 to 15, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When Jesus began his famous Sermon on the Mount, he started with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He was saying then, and he continued to say throughout his ministry, that the door of the kingdom of heaven was open to the spiritually poor and the spiritually destitute. The tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, and the demon-possessed were those who had sinned, and all that was required what was humility and a declaration of their wretched spiritual condition, and the door of the kingdom of heaven was opened wide. Now, of course, Jesus had more to say. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's to say, if the burdened people want rest, they've got to come to Jesus and look to him. The door to the kingdom of heaven is open. But as Jesus said in John chapter 10, he is the door. See, on the one hand, coming into the kingdom of heaven is very difficult for it demands that, you know, you renounce all that you have and all that you presently trust in. You, you've got to empty yourself of pride, abandon your confidence in yourself and in all that you've trusted in. Admit your spiritual poverty, your sin. Enter the kingdom of heaven on your knees. But on the other hand, coming into the kingdom of heaven is profoundly easy. It requires no effort at all. Nothing needs to be done but to repent and to believe. It means simply to surrender all to Christ. Ah, but, but that was not the message of the religious teachers of Israel. See, instead of making plain what's required to enter the kingdom of heaven, they made it obscure and hard to understand and even harder to obtain. That was not just true then. It continues to be true now. See, in many religious circles, the way to enter into the reign of God, to come to peace with God, to know that your sins are forgiven, and that an eternity of joy lies before you, well, that's made so complicated so that untold millions of people will never find their way in. See, some religions teach that one simply can't know if God will accept you, but you must be determined to make your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. And that's a heavy burden indeed. You know, some errant forms of the Christian faith, well, they do teach some good things, but they don't make plain the pathway to God. I read one catechism which had much to say of God as creator and the sustainer of life, and that was good, that was right. But it said nothing of how ruined sinners, the poor in spirit, might know with certainty that their sins are forgiven and that the punishment of their sins was laid on Christ. And I remember years ago now, and it was a good Friday, and I was preaching, and I was explaining why Christ died. And I explained that Christ was a substitute. He took our sins upon himself on the tree, and that we, by an act of repentance of our sins and faith, trusting in the cross, trusting in his suffering for us, that if we did that, he removed our sins from us, and that he was our sin bearer. I then made an invitation that all who wanted could come and surrender their lives to Christ right now, trusting in his cross, that the sin question would be over and your sins would be paid for. I had a couple come to me after the service. They just surrendered to Christ. They were overjoyed. But then I learned that they had been in a certain kind of a church for a lifetime. 
And they had heard sermons about the cross, and they'd even had a crucifix displayed in their church. And they said, we knew that Christ suffered. We just never knew what it meant. We didn't know how our sins could be forgiven. And so before we go on, let me make an invitation. If today you're uncertain about your standing in the kingdom of heaven, would you hear the good news of the gospel? Christ died for you. He offers you a treasure. Come to him. Acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy, that you have nothing to offer God except your sin. Believe that Jesus' cross is your only hope. His death was for you. He took your place, suffered and died for your sins. And then, instead of resisting him, surrender your life into his hands. You call on him. Call him Lord and God and entrust your all into his hands. Don't you see? The door of the kingdom of heaven stands wide open. That's why John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what do we do with those who obscure the way to the Father? See, Matthew chapter 23 contains some of the harshest words Jesus ever spoke. Indeed, from verse 13 of this chapter, all the way through to the end of the same chapter, Jesus repeats the words, Woe! seven times. This is a chapter of woes. It's directed at the religious teachers of Israel, most specifically, the scribes and the Pharisees. And we're today going to consider the first two of those seven woes. I've said before, the Pharisees were the most respected teachers of the law of God in Israel. And the scribes, well, they were a subset of that group. They were a specialized group among them. And to these respected religious teachers, Jesus repeats the word woe seven times. You know that word woe. Well, it's a harsh denunciation. Sometimes when we express harsh denunciations in our culture, well, those denunciations are laced with profanity. You, and then fill in the blank, you know, laden with expletives and all manner of four-letter curse words we say. But Jesus is not using profanity. His use of the word woe is a very carefully chosen word. And so when Jesus uses the word woe, what exactly is he saying? Well, first of all, he's saying, that something will happen in the future. You might be doing fine now, but what awaits you in the future is misery. There is no one, he says, that will be so miserable in the future as you. Woe to you. He means how terrible it will be for you. So for instance, in Luke 6, 24, Jesus says, woe to you who are rich now, and woe to you who are full now, and who laugh now, and so forth. He says, in the future, you'll mourn and weep, And whatever consolation you may have presently enjoyed will be taken away and not remembered given the circumstances that await you. Now, before going into these woes, I want you to notice something else. Six of the seven woes, Jesus adds the word hypocrites. And that leads to a question. Is the disagreement between Jesus and the Pharisees merely a matter of difference of perspective That is, just simply a theological disagreement. That is, are the Pharisees merely deceived? That is, they thought that what they taught was true, but they didn't know that they were wrong. It may be of interest to some that in the history of the church, there have been times in which good Bible teachers have sought to make a distinction between someone who's a false teacher because they're deceived and someone who's a false teacher who knows the truth but obscures it. See, both categories are bad, but the one who deliberately deceives, that one is the greater sinner. And here, Jesus six times, by calling the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites, 
is saying that they deliberately want to appear as one thing and yet knowingly are something else. In Matthew 6, he says, they give money to be seen by others, not because they wish to be obedient to God or because they are compassionate about the poor. They also fast in order to be pious before others, so to advance their standing before people. See, Jesus believes they're frauds, they're deceivers, they're insincere, and they're deceptive. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. Woe to them. So let's begin with the first of the seven woes. It's in Matthew 23, 13 to 14. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So this first woe, we might say, is the heading for all the others that follow. This is the principal sin, the sin that leads to all the others. And you might remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. See, God threatens terrible things if we trip up someone else in their journey to faith. He also threatens terrible things if we shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces and be clear. Jesus is not saying that's possible to trip up those whom he calls the elect. But he is saying that these men are exerting sinister influence. Their teaching results in a great company of men and women who are deceived about the way to the kingdom. People don't search out the true way to the kingdom just because of these men. And of course, those of us who know what these men taught need very few explanations as to how they did it. All we need to do is remember the rules and regulations they taught. They took the commands of God and added countless laws on top of them. They also preferred the oral tradition, which in many places contradicted the plain teaching of the Bible. But the worst of all was that these men taught that human effort and a rigid commitment to keeping the law would eventually earn salvation for them as well as their followers. And of course, all that bred a sense of superiority over sinners and over failures and over those who were poor in spirit. It's a horrible thing when religion causes some to despise others. For the others that are despised are those who ignore the law of God. And instead of holding out mercy to them, they just use that opportunity to lay burdens on them. Woe to them. We never get tired of hearing how listeners are impacted by the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. It's always such an honor when you take the time to let us know the ways you've been encouraged. One Back to the Bible Canada listener recently wrote, I'm grateful for your encouraging and truthful teaching of God's Word. May God continue to richly bless this ministry. Susan, a listener of Laugh Again with Phil Calloway wrote, I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart. There are so many days in which I need a boost of encouragement and an uplifting perspective on life. I love the way you approach each day with a smile. Thanks for making me laugh. If you'd like to share with us your spiritual journey and how it's been impacted through these ministries, don't hesitate to do so. Just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Jesus 
Jesus said that the Pharisees not only closed the door to the kingdom of heaven to others, but they also refused to enter themselves. The humility that is required was more than they could muster. In their eyes, it was better to remain proud of one's own righteousness than to submit to God's righteousness. Think about how this plays out in our own lives. I mean, what happens when we no longer daily repent of sins that we've committed? What happens when we lose a sense that everything we have is because of grace and that we merit nothing? I mean, what happens when we start thinking of our own entitlements rather than marveling that God has treated us as an object of grace? Well, I'll tell you what happens. We'll shut the door of the kingdom of heaven. And when we teach what we practice, we'll also shut the door to others. And when that happens, woe to us, because the anger of God is against those who shut the door to the kingdom. The second woe that Jesus utters goes to the next step. After shutting the door to the kingdom of heaven, the Pharisees have done something else. It's equally despicable. Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. I don't know whether you're aware of it, but every single human being is an evangelist. We all proselytize, or at the very least, we seek to proselytize. I mean, think of how you know forceful today's environmentalists are. Or how about those who advocate for wokeness? I mean, the idea that certain people groups, because of their race, need to live in ongoing and ceaseless guilt. I mean, a guilt out of which they can never be forgiven or cleansed. I mean, that's called proselytizing. I mean, some of it's benign. I mean, people proselytize, you know, for their favorite sports team or for their favorite political party or even for their favorite hobby or their favorite health routines, eating habits. I mean, everyone's out to make converts. Even so, among those who proclaim they're only expressing their opinion, even among those, there is a desire to convince others. Therefore, let's not be surprised that the Pharisees sought converts. But it should also be noted that during the time of Christ, this was a time in which there was a great missionary activity carried out by the Pharisees. And we see that especially in the book of Acts, where there are all manner of Gentiles who were attending Jewish synagogues. Well, on the positive side, it was because of that that a great many Gentiles came to be lovers of the God of Israel. I mean, why, why wouldn't they? I mean, the Old Testament is filled with statements about God's love for the Gentiles. I mean, Abraham was told that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Genesis 22, verse 18 says, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you've obeyed my voice. But that promise isn't just found in Genesis and in relationship to Abraham. Go to Exodus 12, 48, speaking about the Passover. It says, If a stranger shall sojourn with you, and would keep the Passover. That is, provisions were made as to how a foreigner could join with Israel and celebrate Passover. Indeed, on that theme, we do know that at the time of the Exodus, Exodus 12 verse 38 actually says that when Israel departed from Egypt, that a mixed multitude also left with them and joined them. That can only mean that Egyptian nationals, perhaps, and perhaps others also wanted to be a part of the people of God. Leviticus 19.34 commands, You shall love the stranger and the sojourner even as you love the fellow Israelite. And we also know from the book of Joshua that that Rahab, the, the Canaanite prostitute, became attached to the people of Israel. Ruth a Moabitess said to her Jewish mother-in-law, 
that your people shall be my people. We know that when Solomon dedicated the temple, a great section of his prayer on that day was his appeal to God that whenever a foreigner would come to this temple and pray, that God would hear and answer so that all the nations on earth would know of Israel's God and his mercy for all. See, we might think of Naaman, the Syrian commander, who came to realize that Israel's God was the only true God. I I could go on and on. The Old Testament really does explicitly teach God's love for Gentiles, as well as an appeal that Israel should care about the salvation of the Gentiles. I mean, the book of Jonah, well, it's an overwhelming denunciation of those who will not have compassion on the lost Gentiles. So in answer to the scriptures, The Pharisees were interested in Gentile conversions, but, says Jesus, here's the problem. When you make a single convert, you make that convert twice the child of hell that you are. So why was that? Well, the answer was that any Gentile convert should have to submit to the rabbinical regulations, the very regulations that Jesus said were offensive to God. And as we know from history, any Gentile convert who was, in the case of males, they had to be circumcised, then forced to sever all ties with their Gentile families, then to submit to the offensive works of righteousness that the Pharisees taught, those Gentiles were called proselytes of righteousness. But most Gentiles weren't willing to go that far, you know, be severed from their family. It was just too much. And so one had a class of Gentiles, they were called God-fearers. So they loved the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they'd never become converts. And as we read through the book of Acts, the gospel, that is the good news, that the Gentiles were made converts by faith in Christ alone, that was heralded not just as good news, but the greatest news they'd ever heard. They became a part of the people of God by faith and by faith alone. But let's get back to those Gentile converts of the Pharisees. So why are they twice the children of hell that the Pharisees were? Is that simply rabbinic exaggeration, like saying you might have a log in your eye while you're trying to, you know, pick out a speck in your neighbor's eye? Well, perhaps that's how Jesus was saying it, but I wonder if you've ever met a smoker who became a non-smoker. You know, sometimes the zeal they have to chastise anyone who smokes is a far greater zeal than anyone who's never smoked. And Jesus is pointing out that the convert to the Pharisaic system is almost beyond redemption. So rabid are they for the heretical Pharisaical gospel. See, I've noticed this about, let's say, Jehovah's Witnesses, a sect that opposes the true gospel. I've observed three types. The first group is the young, you know, that just come out of, you know, J.W. Holmes. I mean, they're a diverse group. They have differing characteristics and who they are depends a great deal on a old number of factors. But then there's the age of JW. I mean, those are the people who have pursued works righteousness for a lifetime. And among other things, a great many of this group is simply, well, tired, weary of a system that makes demands in which points are being collected in heaven and the burden only grows greater with age. You know, and some in this group can be won just simply through kindness and love and showing genuine concern for them. But then there's another group. That's the recent convert who's come from the outside. That person is often incorrigible, opinionated, loud, unwilling to reason, given to argumentation. See, what a tragedy among the Pharisees. Every convert they made was more resistant to the gospel than any other group. Or how the door of the kingdom of heaven was shut to them. Wherever the Pharisees went, they were creating that kind of a person. 
Now then, having painted a portrait of a group of men whose job in life was to slam the door of the kingdom of heaven in men and women's faces, Jesus now gives a second woe, and this one clarifies how dangerous these men were. Do you remember the parable of the wheat and the weeds? You'll find the parable in Matthew 13. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in a field, and of course, Jesus is the one who's sowing the good seed. But then surprisingly, the parable is not about how people respond to the message of Jesus. That parable speaks about a group of individuals who have come to ruin the harvest that Jesus was planting. An enemy comes, says Jesus, and this enemy is the devil, Satan, the Lord of the kingdom of darkness, the Lord of hell. Now this enemy comes and plants destructive weeds, darnel plants that tend to tear out good plants. The thing about Darnell is that in the initial growth of the plant, it looks very similar to the real thing. And who are the Darnell? And the answer is, says Jesus, the sons of the evil one, the sons of the devil. Well, does that surprise you? The devil, in fact, has sons and daughters. So in this stinging denunciation, this sevenfold repetition of woes, Jesus is saying the Pharisees and the scribes, they were the sons of the devil. They had been appointed by the devil to teach a false gospel and to slam the door of salvation in the unwitting faces of many. Now, is that still happening today? You know, the sad truth is, it is. And it might happen by those who teach that some kind of works have to be done in order to earn salvation. Or it might be those who simply teach that you can't believe everything that Jesus teaches or a number of other things as well. What we need to do is to join with Jesus and resist men and women who shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in men and women's faces. Thanks for your message, John. Now tell me and help me understand, what is it that is possibly so destructive about a works theology? Yeah, a works theology essentially wants to replace God. It puts all the emphasis on us, so that when we think about our salvation, we say, the glory goes to me. I was able to attain towards heaven. Um, So it wants to rob God of his glory, which is the ultimate evil. Um, Whereas a grace theology says, the only reason I ever got saved is because God had mercy on me, and therefore all glory goes to God where it rightly belongs. Uh, God will not share his glory with us. That's what's wrong with it. Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Everyone has a story. We all come from a beginning and an end, and while it may go largely unnoticed by the world around us, God knows our story and he invites us to unite our story with his. The story of Jesus is not simply something we read. It's a drama which invites preparation and participation. We participate by faith and obedience. So thank you for your prayers and financial support that you offer this ministry. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to telling the whole story of God with consistent, clear teaching of the Bible. Your support ensures the truths of God's Word are taught daily. We ask you to consider a gift to support Bible teaching this month, perhaps for the first time, or by becoming a monthly partner. To give a gift, 
Visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.